This episode of Paper Team is brought to you by the 2018 Launchpad Pilots Competition. Now in their fifth year, the Launchpad competitions have helped 254 writers get signed, 81 projects get set up, 48 writers get stuffed, and led to four bidding wars. When you enter your pilot script this year, you'll save $15 off your entry just by using the code PAPERTEAM, all caps, all one word, at the checkout, as a special thank you to our listeners. For more information on the tracking board's current competitions and exclusive partners, visit tblaunchpad.com. Welcome to Paper Team, a podcast about television writing and becoming a TV writer. I'm Alex Friedman, aka TV Calling. And I'm Nick Watson on Twitter, underscore NJ Watson. And today we're going to be talking about censorship and standards and practices in TV shows. It's going to be f***ing awesome. Let's start things off with our usual paper scrap segment. And as we mentioned last week, I actually recently installed a little voicemail button on my website, TV Calling, for you guys to send us little snippets or little voicemails with any questions you may have about TV writing or the TV industry or any other kinds of questions. And we actually received our very first voicemail, Nick. Woo. Wow, he seems super excited. No, I am. I legitimately am. So here it is. Without further ado, our very first Hi, I'm interested in applying to one of the diversity writing programs. It looks like a lot of the deadlines have passed. Are there any that have rolling submissions or anything in which I could submit to um, soon? Well, I don't believe there are any big time fellowships that do rolling submissions because they have a very set period of time in either April or May where people submit their TV writing specs, the various programs. Uh, However, we do recommend a bunch of competitions that do offer maybe not rolling submissions, but definitely multiple times of entries. Like again, the aforementioned tracking board pilot competitions is going from now until probably early next year, uh, just so that people who are maybe still writing the pilot right now and don't have it ready to go can send it at that point. That could be a good way to get your stuff ready for the fellowships when they open again in April and May. I do think the reason that they don't have a deadline that's available all year is just because those fellowships tend to plug into the schedules of those networks and they're looking to train people up for a year and then next year trying to get them staffed on their shows around that time again. So it just has to all line up according to the calendar. So I don't think it's really feasible for them to just accept applications anytime. Absolutely. Speaking of viewer questioning... Nick, I believe we received some other emails. Yeah, so we've gotten a few emails from fellow Australians asking about the whole visa process. How do you get over here? How do you actually get the right to work and live in the States? And it is a complicated process. But just in case you haven't listened to the episode, where we go into detail on that, I'd like to refer everyone back to PT56, the Immigrants We Get the Job Done episode. I do spend a little while going into the different kinds of visas that you can get, which are, you know, the J1, the E3, the O1, all that kind of thing. And a little bit about the process. I can't really give you legal advice on how to go about applying for each of these individual things, but most of the information is out there on the internet if you look it up. The J1 and the E3, you can do yourself. The O1, you will need a lawyer to do. But check out that episode. If you still have questions or concerns, feel free to email us at ask at paperteam. Paperteam.co, yeah. yeah. Uh, also, a lot of the visas we refer to are mostly for Australian, I believe, right? The, yeah, that that's that's the thing, too, is like these are specific to Australia due to some trade deals and treaties that we have with the U.S., so this may not be broadly applicable to our other listeners. But we did mention other kinds of visas and obviously the green card process. So if you want to leave us an email, obviously, you can always do that at ask at paperteam.co. And if you want to leave us a voicemail, you just go to T tv-calling.com and uh, click on that big red button on the right side to leave us a voicemail even from your phone so we'll see you next week for that little paper scrap segment all right let's talk about censorship what is censorship censorship is defined as the suppression of speech public communication or other information on the basis that such material is considered objectionable harmful sensitive, politically incorrect, as determined by government authorities or by community consensus. And so when that applies to television broadcast, it's often referred to as standards and practices or S&P for short. Some people refer to as BSP, broadcast standards and practices. And also uh, <laughs> I'll let you uh, figure out the, what the BS the double for. meaning. But in terms of who enforces these standards and practices and why, I mean, the first player that we got to talk about is the FCC or the Federal Communications Commission, which is a government agency formed in 1934. 
And the reason why the FCC is involved in TV regulation in the first place, specifically with broadcast networks like CBS, NBC, ABC, or Fox, is that the airwaves on which those networks broadcast are actually public. So essentially, we are allowing those private businesses to use the public property if they follow certain rules and get the right licenses. And those rules obviously are enforced through the FCC. Aside from the FCC, you also have these internal standards and practices departments that exist at every network. And, you know, networks had been setting their own standards as far back as 1921 when a lot of them were radio broadcasters, but most TV networks signed on to the 1950 NAB, National Association of Broadcasters, code. And then the S&P departments really exist to protect the network's brand and image and maintain their audience and advertisers. Speaking of, a lot of what we're going to be talking about in this episode regarding TV censorship does stem from advertising pressure. So for example, advertisers unwilling or afraid to buy ad time on programs that use certain words or show certain body parts during certain hours. And networks want to please these advertisers so they end up with a set of standards and practices. So Comedy Central actually will sometimes show on weekends the uncut version of movies since the ad rates have drop low enough that it doesn't really matter whether or not they censor it. And broadcast TV has a lot more laws regarding content since they use public airwaves, which we'll talk about in a second again. And whereas HBO and premium cable networks, on the other hand, don't have so many regulations since they're kind of a separate subscription model. So what are the actual differences between standards and practices on broadcast compared to cable and streaming? Well, broadly speaking, you kind of have three different tiers of regulation in American TV. So the first tier is the most restrictive, and those are the public airwaves that are regulated by the government as well as self-regulated by the networks themselves. And this is the only government-regulated level and is for broadcast stations, i.e. the big four. Essentially, if you can get that content over the antenna or over the air, then at that point, it does fall in that category of uh, very restrictive and specifically under FCC regulation. And what is and isn't allowed is actually not as defined legally speaking. And we'll talk a little bit more about that uh, once we talk about the whole Supreme Court of it all. But a lot of it comes down to interpretation of what is deemed inappropriate. And censorship ends up being a lot more lucrative than not censoring anything because those advertisers want to promote their products in kind of a safe environment to a big and broad audience. And this brings us to the second tier, which is more basic cable restrictions, and that is entirely self-regulated. Again, that is the network deciding what is or not appropriate for their own network. And these are any channel you don't get on broadcast. In other words, basic cable stations that sell ads on top of subscriptions. So FX, AMC, TBS, they kind of regulate themselves. And some of those networks are very family friendly, like I think Discovery Channel or maybe Disney Channel, and others may have more mature content. Now, each network creates content that they believe will attract the best ad dollar for their own market. And so basic cable is kind of in this middle area where you do pay specific subscription from cable, but they're still reliant on advertising. And so there's still this understanding that some of the things can slide, whereas some others can in that whole safe arbor uh, period. Now, some shows may have more clout to push the envelope, but that is usually kind of a showrunner slash executive discussion. And the rule of thumb, and that actually applies for broadcast as well, is that the longer the show lasts, the more lenient S&P is. Yeah, so in the case of cable, it's not so much that they're worried about the government fining them for anything that comes on the air. It's, it's more about carving out these spaces in which we want to be pushing our content and to this particular audience who is going to be interested in these particular ads, and we're going to get that money for that. So it is, like you said, a prudent business decision rather than any kind of fear of punishment. Absolutely. And the, the last year is obviously the premium cable and actually a lot of the OTTs like Netflix and Amazon. And these have little to no restrictions specifically because they do not have ads. They don't need to appeal to this big audience or get advertising money, which means that they can make whatever content they want. Now, uh, I will say this about the Amazon and Netflix, which in my mind are kind of the broadcast version of these OTT networks. They do still want to appeal to the big audience. So some of this content won't be um, as mature, but given that the viewer can sort of pick and choose whatever he or she wants to watch, they are able to create this more mature content that can appeal to specific niches. And specifically with Amazon, which ties in so heavily to its product service, which, you know, you're buying 
particular things off of Amazon. I think there is some level of advertising associated with that. And they're also wanting to carve out niches in their programming. For example, children and babies and toddlers and stuff. If you put that preschool programming on there and you have a subscription to Amazon Prime, then maybe parents are going to be ordering their nappies and their diapers. Or what do you guys call them? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, we call them nappies in Australia. Uh, and, you know, baby food and things like that through Amazon because they already have the subscription and their kids are already watching this thing. So there are little corner cases like that. And it's even more intrusive with the whole product placement of it all. Although, again, this episode is about censorship. There's a whole other conversation to be had about product placement. you got to keep that in mind every time you watch those shows is people are serving different masters essentially, right? Because it's not just the network. It's not just the advertisers. It's also the audience. It's all those people interconnected with the FCC, with the PTA, all those different organizations. Going back just to the root of censorship, we got to talk about the definition of what is considered obscene in television seen at its most basic level is considered something that offends morality, which is such a subjective thing. But the law considers anything that is obscene to not be protected under First Amendment rights of freedom of speech and can thus be prohibited or restricted by the government or the law. And this decision was made in 1973 in a case called Miller versus California. And so now it's commonly referred to as the Miller test. And the ruling was this, if the average person applying contemporary community standards would find that the material appeals to the prurient interest, now prurient means like obsessively sexual, that the material describes or depicts sexual conduct in a patently offensive manner, or taken as a whole, the material lacks serious literary, artistic, political, or scientific value. So that's what's considered obscene and therefore is able to be restricted if it meets those standards, which is, again, such a subjective thing. What are community standards? They shift all the time. Absolutely. And uh, it's important to note that what you just talked about is not this black and white itemized list of things to be censored. And the biggest reason why, for example, sex and nudity is being censored over anything else is actually based on the FCC's own definition of obscene and indecent program content. Now, on the flip side, if you go take a look at the Supreme Court cases regarding TV obscenity, the language used actually doesn't address depiction of violence directly, which is why it has been historically more lenient in that regard. So all that is in the same way that beauty is in the eye of the beholder, censorship is in the ear of whoever gets offended. Yeah, that's definitely always the question is why is sex so much more heavily regulated than violence? Why on the balance of these two things, when you look at it from a, a fairly liberal progressive moral standpoint, these days we are very free about sex and sexuality, whereas violence is as abhorrent as it's always been. But we allow so much more of that, particularly to you know, children, things like that. So it's such an interesting conversation. You know, do you think that part of the reason why is just because of the legal definitions that we've allowed violence to be so much more accepted in our public consciousness? Yes and no. I mean, I do believe there's this weird balance. And in America, especially, there's a lot of fetishization of violence. Mm -hmm. This idea of America, the Western, everybody wants to get a gun. It's national identity, isn't it? Like, yeah, the Wild West, yeah, exactly. winning World War II, all this kind of stuff. Absolutely. Like, and, yeah. it's, and whereas sex, I, I believe... Let's not forget that religion has a big importance in American culture and the FCC, all those big organizations are by and large very conservative and they abide by the pressure of the letters that they receive and all those complaints. And a lot of those networks go through this idea of better safe than sorry. They don't want to intrude in people's homes and, and broadcast something that people may find offensive, which is Again, something that's debatable, like what is offensive or not. Yeah, I guess there's a lot of violence in the Bible, but not a lot of sex that isn't being used as an example for reasons for people to be punished by God. So even I mean, way I, back then. Yeah. I'm really curious to see if, let's say, ABC or CBS were to make a literal version of the Bible. They were filming this amazing Bible, New Testament, Old Testament version miniseries. Mm -hmm. Would they be able to broadcast everything that takes place in the Bible on the broadcast TV? Yeah, and would religious groups be object <laughs> to it being <laughs> depicted? <laughs> <laughs> who knows, who knows? It's like, could God make a burrito so hot that even he couldn't eat it? Wait, what is that? What is burrito? It's a random, dumb thought experiment thing. Okay, good know. to know. Speaking of <laughs> random thoughts, in terms of the, the sort of the litmus test of what is considered vulgar or not, a lot of the words, especially that get bleeped out or not, are based on whether or not they refer to anatomical content. So uh, you can say you're an ass, Nick, you're an ass, because it could be a donkey, kind of like a jackass. Whereas if you are actually using ass as 
sort of a, a physical description uh, or sexual innuendo, then at that point, it needs to be bleeped out. Now, realistically, cable channels can say whatever they want. But again, it comes down to those sponsors and the pressure. And that is why AFC and Comedy Central, as I just mentioned, can broadcast unedited films on the weekend. And I know we're going to talk a little bit more about how people have gotten past the censors later, but I guess that ambiguity is one of those ways. If something could be interpreted in a number of ways, or it's a double entendre, it sometimes gets through or is acceptable. I kind of want a legal show now about a S&P, like people fighting <laughs> the specific lawsuits. S&P about, procedurals? Wow. Dun, dun. Blind order <laughs> S&P. <laughs> Now, speaking of censorship, I will mention a little episode from the Chris Gethard show that aired last year about censorship. It actually featured Pete Holmes and a standards and practices lawyer from the Fusion Network. And if you don't know the Chris Gethard show, essentially, it's kind of this out comedy talk show with each episode dealing with a unique topic. And so, as I just mentioned last year, they did this one episode all about censorship, as well as what is offensive and where we draw the line with free speech on the air. And to explain the whole process and how it works, on cable TV, Chris actually invited this lawyer who works in S&P to give insight, explaining that it's mostly up to the network's discretion and based on letters from angry viewers. And as I mentioned, a lot of the time, it is this better safe than sorry mentality. And despite the fact that this Chris Gethard show airs on basic cable on Fusion, a lot of the episode was bleeped out because people you know, were pushing the boundaries and were using curse words left and right. And they actually even did an experiment within the episode around nudity on TV, where one of the cast members slowly stripped and took his own clothes off on stage to see when the black censor bar would be added in in post. <laughs> That's amazing. Uh, so I will link that whole episode in the show notes. It's on YouTube. It's free watch for everyone to see. I'm assuming there's probably uh, geographical limitations. So if you're in Australia or somewhere else, you probably won't be able to see it. And I guess a lot of those angry letters are coming from certain lobby groups that represent those conservative interests. Earlier in this very episode, I think I, I said the PTA. The PTA is something different. <laughs> I meant to say the PTC, the Parents Television Council, and also the One Million Mom uh, organization that a lot of those groups are very conservative on a religious standpoint. Yeah, you don't see a lot of like very liberal groups complaining about <laughs> things, do you? <laughs> it's always like, we actually had uh, some letters. I think we had a petition from the One Million Moms to take the Muppets off the air when I worked on there because they thought that they were like corrupting children because they're like, oh, these are children's characters and they're doing two adult things with them. <laughs> I thought you were going to announce that we got a letter from a million moms to take down this very podcast. Paper team? I wish. Yeah. It would be nice if uh, people knew about us. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Any publicity is good publicity. It is of note that uh, there's also this idea of safe harbor times. And these are the times during the day where essentially you can only broadcast content that any viewer, especially younger audiences, are able to see that content. It's usually like 6 a.m. to 10 p.m. And I guess that's why all the late night TV comes after that. So they can say whatever they want about, you know, the issues of the day. Like we're saying, a lot of these ratings are there to ostensibly protect children from being exposed to certain content that people believe they may not be developmentally ready for. And they could cause them distress, whether that's swearing, explicit violence, sex, horror elements that may scare them. As we've been saying, there's also a point at which this becomes fairly subjective and cultural. You know, these religious parents and groups may have a very different set of morals and beliefs about what children should be exposed to than the average American. So, you know, who really decides where that line is and whether it's representative of the majority of America's moral values and beliefs? I mean, that is the FCC, right? Exactly. That is basically what the FCC is there for. And it's interesting to see how the FCC has sort of shifted standpoints depending on who is president or the sort of governmental pressure. And there's little TV ratings that you see in black boxes down in the corner of the screen. Interestingly, they weren't mandated till the Telecommunications Act of 1996. And they are put in for all content except for news, sports, and advertisements. And they base them off of the motion picture rating system, which people are pretty familiar with, that was established in 1968. Many of the streaming services now have also adopted these ratings, like Hulu, Amazon, Netflix, even the iTunes Store, and Google Play. Like we've been saying, these particular guidelines have no legal weight or enforcement, and it's a voluntary thing that the networks are putting on there to show what their content is suitable for. But interestingly, since around 1999 to 2000, all TV sets that are manufactured in the US are legally required to have this thing called a V-chip built in that will allow parents to block programs based on their ratings. So the actual TV ratings categories themselves are as follows. The youngest is TVY. It's appropriate for all children, usually around ages two to six. 
Uh, then you got TVY7, which is mostly programs designated for children age seven and above. And this may actually include FV, which is fantasy violence. That's kind of cool. FV, fantasy violence. <laughs> is that Lord of the Rings? <laughs> uh, I guess so, yeah. Magic, magic and fireballs. Um, but yeah, it's funny. They say that the at this age range, they are more able to distinguish between make-believe and reality. Oh, so. interesting. The next one is TVG, and that is something that most parents would find suitable for all ages. They contain little to no violence, strong language, little or no sexual dialogue or situations. Then you got TVPG, and that's a program that contains material that parents may find unsuitable for younger children, but it may contain some mild to moderate profanity, some sexual content, suggested dialogue, or maybe a little bit of violence. TV14 is stuff that contains material many parents would find unsuitable for children under 14 years of age. And that's when they advise that maybe parents should monitor their children watching this or you know, reconsider that. And lastly, my favorite of all ratings, TVMA, which is obviously mature content and unsuitable for children under 17. Although if you're 17, are you considered a, a child, I guess, technically? But uh, Yeah, I think till 18. Um, so. I don't know, but uh, obviously all that TVMA content contains a lot of sexual content, extreme violence. Uh, or maybe both like Game of Thrones. I mean, that's the peak TVM. Exactly. There's also some additional content descriptors they can tack on to each of those ratings just to give you a more specific idea of what might be in here and what might be objectionable. They are D, which is suggestive dialogue, L, coarse or crude language, S, sexual situations, V for violence, and like Alex said before, FV for fantasy violence, which is exclusive to that TVY7 rating. And that exists specifically to distinguish what is real from what isn't, right? I think the, so, yeah. yeah. Well, that's an interesting rating. We've uh, taken a look at sort of broad strokes and the big players in the censorship slash standards and practices industry, but let's take a look at how those sensibilities have changed across the years on TV. Yeah, it's really interesting to consider the kinds of things that used to be offensive and obscene back in the early days of TV. In the 1950s, married couples were required to sleep in separate beds on TV. <laughs> you, you know, you can see those sets where it's two single beds. Wow. <laughs> and then back in I Love Lucy in 1952, even though Lucy was pregnant, they weren't allowed to use the word pregnant. They had to say stuff like expecting or with child. And then the Standards and Practices Department of NBC back in 1960 censored one of Jack Parr's jokes on The Tonight Show, and it was a very tame joke that used the word water closet, or WC, which is a word for toilet, and they're like, no, you can't say that at all. They censored it, and he walked off the show the next day in protest. Wow. That's uh, how uh, what toilets are called in France, WC. Oh, they yeah. say. True story. Interesting. But uh, just to go back real quick to the I Love Lucy example I just mentioned, I mean, I Love Lucy wasn't allowed to use the word pregnant, and we're using uh, essentially euphemisms for the word. But even, I mean, as recently as the 2010s, whenever Grey's Anatomy started, I do believe that they were not allowed to use the word vagina on ABC at that time. On a medical show. On a medical show. And so that is why you heard at that period of time a lot of the JJ on TV. If you oh remember, that was the whole period of the JJ. And that's because they were not allowed to use the word vagina. Uh, now, since then, ABC has been on the record saying that they could use uh, vagina. So that's how ridiculous. times have changed. <laughs> Up until very recently. Uh, now, you can't have me on a podcast. Kind of what Nick said the other week where uh, you can't have Nick on a podcast without talking about The Simpsons. Well, you can't have me on a podcast without me talking about Star Trek. And uh, over the years, obviously, the show and the franchise has shattered a lot of taboos. And one of its most iconic moments uh, was in 1968 with the Kirk slash Uhura kiss. Now, NBC executives were concerned that the interracial kiss would anger viewers in the South, and according to reports, they planned to censor the kiss from Southern viewers entirely, just showing this uh, embrace and kind of shooting two different variations. And even though they actually kiss on the show, the two characters, a lot of it was still soft-pedaled. I mean, the scene itself was shot and edited in such a way that viewers never actually witnessed Shatner and Nicole's lips touching, and the script was written to also take out any romance out of the equation. I mean, if you look at the story, it's this idea that the characters are forced to kiss because of the captor's telekinetic powers. It's yeah, I, I heard that they made them film both the kiss take and the one where they just hugged, but Shatner deliberately blew the hug take by making sure <laughs> So they couldn't like see his face and do stuff like that so and then he left set so they were forced to just use the kiss because they yeah. never actually got their alternate take i think the exact quote was uh, shatner saying let's hug that bra <laughs> and then they just had to cut it out i'm sure 
1971, another groundbreaking show, All in the Family, had a lot of firsts, including hilariously the first time the sound of a toilet being flushed was allowed to be heard on TV. <laughs> Prior to this, Leave it to Beaver in 1957 was the first time that they were allowed to show a toilet on TV. They were very strict about, oh, we can't see the seat of the toilet. Oh, that's a little too offensive. It's <laughs> crazy. But All in the Family also had the first officially gay character on TV. Uh, it was a really interesting episode called Judging Books by Their Covers, where Archie Bunker is railing against the behavior of this very flamboyant man who he's sure is gay, only to discover that the person who's actually gay is this very macho football linebacker friend of his called Steve's, you know, subverting all of his expectations about what gay people look like and do and act like. So a very nuanced portrayal for the first time. The 19, on TV. Uh, wow. Was it 1970s? 1971, yeah. And then in 1972, the show Maud had her having an abortion two months before the Roe v. Wade decision made abortion legal in the United States. So they were really pushing the boundaries there as well. Probably uh, 50 years before Roe v. Wade uh, is going to be rescinded. Oh, God. Anyway. Um, Uh, And then in 1981, Saturday Night Live was the first show to say the F word on network television. The comedian who said it, Charles Rocket, was fired for doing it. Really? That's interesting that uh, I guess you do get fired for uh, blundering. And I think the same thing happened even recently. I mean, recently, relatively speaking, a few years ago. Was it Jenny Slate or one of the newer cast members who said the F word on TV and shortly thereafter was uh, let go? So that can happen to anyone. Still happening. Yep. Now, since we're entering the 90s, I mean, I got to mention one of my favorite shows, NYPD Blue was actually the first kind of R-rated network TV series due to its very overt nudity depicted on screen. And a lot of those concerned organizations like the PTC took out full page ads in newspapers asking people to boycott the show. And even New York Times at the time of airing published this article entitled What's a Network TV Censor to Do? Wondering whether or not the police drama would put standards and practices executives out of business. Now, obviously, today we know that wasn't the case. And Boschko himself said, quote, I thought NYPD Blue would open a door to more adult mainstream programming. It's disappointing that it influenced cable more than broadcast. I mean, it really did open the way for all of HBO and things like that. But I guess maybe it hasn't affected broadcast TV as much as. Yeah, I mean, I would say it definitely influenced a lot more of the FX, John Langraff variety. But the fact that most of the content that was on NYPD Blue would not pass the test today on broadcast network, I find uh, kind of shocking. But um, the show at the time had a long sort of protracted development process, including meticulous negotiations over just how explicit that content would be. And in fact, Robert Iger, who was then the ABC chief, and uh, Boschko actually sat down with a notepad drawing pictures of naked people (laughs) detailing to what extent these various body angles could be shown on TV. TV. And as we just mentioned, I mean, when NYPD was released, the American Family Association convinced 57 ABC affiliates, which is about a quarter of the network's lineup, not to air the show. Now, despite all of this, NYPD Blue began with huge ratings, and the rest is kind of history. And as Boschko said, that's just TV 101. No one is going to cancel us with a 35 share. So apparently NYPD Blue was essentially the reason why the Parents Television Council was founded. The the founder, L. Brent Bozell, who's a very, you know, religious guy, said that the nudity in that show influenced him to create the organization. So that's the reason that thing exists. So we should blame Stephen Boschko essentially for the PTC. <laughs> I hold him personally accountable. Speaking of procedurals, in 1991, the show L.A. Law was actually the very first to depict a lesbian kiss on TV. And then the first gay male kiss on primetime TV was nine years later in the year 2000 on Dawson's Creek, as I've spoken about before on the podcast. And it was interesting when it was being filmed, the writers and producers said the network made them shoot coverage from all the way across the street so that they could edit it in (laughs) so that you wouldn't actually see the kiss if the network decided they needed to censor it. And luckily they did. And, you know, the WB was pretty progressive at the time. Yeah, that's kind of shocking. I want to say that the first gay male kiss on TV was in the year 2000. This yeah, like nine years time. later before that. It's I don't know, it's interesting. I think it speaks to certain social mores and the, the male gays, perhaps, that they are happy to see two women kissing, but not two men because that, you know, is an affront to them. Absolutely. I mean, that brings me to a point that you just made, which is over the years, there has actually been many episodes of TV that were specifically written around this concept of two women uh, kissing. It's kind of this very special episode where two women, this kind of lesbian kiss episode, and it's become a trope and a subgenre of TV episode. And as I just mentioned, so the trope is really about the fact that you have two female characters sharing a kiss 
while the potential of their relationship between uh, these two people doesn't survive past the episode. And in fact, it's become such a trope that there's a Wikipedia page about it. It's not just on TV tropes, it's also on Wikipedia, folks. That's how you know you and, made uh, it. <laughs> exactly. That's a trope. <laughs> That's a trope. And uh, 10 years ago, the New York Times took a look at the trope and concluded, quote, kisses between women are perfect sweeps stunts. They offer something for everyone from advocacy groups looking for role models to indignation-seeking conservatives, from goggle-eyed male viewers to progressive female ones, from tyrants who demand psychological complexity to plot buffs. And the first episode of its kind was, as Nick just mentioned, the 91 LA Law episode by David E. Kelly called He's a Crowd, which featured a kiss between CJ and Abby. And David E. Kelly actually went on to use the same trope in at least two of his other shows. And this attitude about portraying lesbian relationships without any longevity has persisted in Hollywood. I mean, Marty Noxon spoke about the resistance that writers on Buffy the Vampire Slayer encountered in 2002 about the long-term relationship relationship between Willow and Tara. And in an interview, Noxon said, you can show girls kissing once, but you cannot show them kissing twice because the second time it means they liked it. And that coupled with the whole bury your gay trope is still an ongoing issue in TV today. Now, I will also link in the show notes a very interesting article by Becky Chambers from the Mary Sue website, specifically talking about this topic, uh, also discussing Rejoined, which is another iconic Star Trek episode, this one from Deep Space Nine, which again features two female characters kissing. Moving ahead to the 2000s and 2010s, you would imagine that things have become more progressive and lenient, but you have to look at perhaps even South Park, where they got in a lot of trouble for depicting the image of the Prophet Muhammad in one of their episodes. And so in order to be broadcast on TV, they had to hide him behind a big black box that said the words censored, and then also bleep out anytime they said his name in the episode. And also Adult Swim, which is not really known for its family friendliness. There was a show called Moral Aural, and it was aired as TV MA, but they still had a number of episodes being held back by the network for being too dark and over the top sexually crude, which is saying something for Adult Swim. If you've seen anything like Metalocalypse or Mr. Pickles, they really don't hold back there. Yeah. I mean, regarding the Muhammad of it all with South Park, a lot of it is obviously tied to real life events that were happening at the time. Yeah. That was um, a so very it's not just, uh, of time, yeah. But. but as you just said, I mean, most people do assume that kind of TV has become more and more permissive in terms of language and nudity over the decades. But I mean, it does feel true, but if you actually look at history, it's not quite as clear-cut as that. I mean, back in 1977, ABC aired Roots, which obviously is one of the highest-rated programs in TV history, and it included uncensored frontal nudity on ABC, and the FCC did not object. And actually, some miniseries deep in the 80s with Lonesome Dove also featured frontal nudity without any objection. And in 97, NBC aired Schindler's List, again unedited, and the FCC did not object. But the tide kind of shifted in the early 2000s with this new aggressive FCC board under the Bush administration that began issuing indecency fines to TV networks, which up until that point had not really been a thing. And in 2004, obviously, we had the infamous Nipplegate incident where Janet Jackson's right breast was partially exposed. And when I say partially exposed, I'm talking less than one second at the Super Bowl halftime show. And the FCC gave CBS the largest fine in its history, $550,000. And from then on, broadcasters could not really rely on the FCC's predictable behavior of just giving warnings instead of fines, which led to live broadcasts being scaled back substantially. Uh, obviously, now we have the, what is it, three, seven second delay, something like that, uh, on top of any controversial content really being cut down. I mean, for example, NBC used to show the movie Saving Pride Ryan on Veterans Day, and from that point on, they stopped doing it altogether. It's worth noting that a federal appeals court in 2011 did rule against the FCC fine and strike it down, seeing that this decision was arbitrary and capricious because the commission didn't announce that it was stiffening its guidelines for what they call fleeting material, just little incidental moments like that, until March 2004, which was after the February 2004 Super Bowl broadcast. Yeah, they essentially retconned their own uh, regulations. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Let's talk a little bit about what we mentioned in terms of cultural differences in what is acceptable and what is offensive and can be portrayed between, say, the U.S. and Europe or other countries around the world. With uh, shows becoming more and more international, this actually means that a lot of those values and anything that could be deemed controversial to outside markets must be cut out even before it reaches those places. 
And the most clear example of this is any movie or even shows being made for the Chinese market. Just last year, the Chinese government tightened restrictions of TV content even further. Any TV drama about certain topics, like the medical industry or national security, must have their content approved by specific government departments first. And one of the creators of such a Chinese program was told that he had to get permission from China's Ministry of Foreign Affairs for a character in his drama who is a migrant worker and travels abroad. And then the state administration for industry and commerce had to give approval for two scenes showing a street vendor getting caught by local market regulators. And he was also told to speak with the National Energy Administration, the Ministry of Land and Resources, as well as the propaganda department of the Communist Party's Central Committee about a lead character who moves to northern China to extract oil, as well as get approval from the Minister of Commerce about a mention in the drama of a clueless farmer who travels to France to start a small business. That's crazy. The level of <laughs> of detail, government. Yeah. yeah, and the the Titan censorship over TV shows that address real life issues has been pushing more producers to make fantasy or historical costume dramas, which accounted for more than half of the top ten rated TV dramas in China. I mean, looking at、uh, Australian censorship and standards and practices, I'd say it's very similar to the U.S. Like our TV and movie ratings are fairly close to the U.S. system. I would say we are as prudish, if not more, sometimes than the U.S. Particularly, there was a huge furor about video game censorship in Australia. There were a number of games. I think one of them was Manhunt, if you remember that one, about you play a serial killer going around. And a lot of the Grand Theft Auto games, they did not have an R18 plus rating for video games in Australia for a while. So essentially, any game that had that content, like Grand Theft. Order was just banned from being released in Australia. Is that tied to the violence? Yeah, it was essentially that. It was like it was a high level of violence. Also, Grand Theft Auto had a number of、like、sex scenes, things like that in it as well. So we just could not get those games in the country at all because they didn't have a provision for rating something above people seventeen and over. I know you guys have very strict restrictions regarding guns and all those different aspects, right? Yeah, it was definitely a lesser culture of <laughs> overt violence in Australia in terms of the fact that we banned automatic and semi-automatic weapons and things like that. So perhaps that has something to do with it. Speaking of kind of cultural differences, an interesting note about Australian S and P for TV and film is that there is often a warning included for Indigenous Australian people, and that is it goes like this: Warning: Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander viewers are warned that the following program may contain images and voices of deceased persons. This is because in many tribes' cultures, there is a tradition of avoiding referring to a dead person by their name directly after their death, up to you know、uh, months to years, as a mark of respect.、And、that's because it's considered too painful for the grieving family. And today, it's extended to avoiding the publication and dissemination of photography or film footage of the deceased person as well. So, if you're watching a show that has an Aboriginal person in it who has since passed, it's disrespectful for them to watch that. Wow, interesting. I wonder if we're going to reach a point in America where we're going to have those warnings, those essentially cultural warnings, in front of content. That's an interesting idea. Going back to that topic of sex versus violence for a second, I feel like France and Europe must have a slightly more lax approach to sexuality in TV and cinema, right? I mean, they definitely do.、Uh, I did want to mention though first that、uh, France has this、uh, Conseil Supérieur de l'Audiovisuel. I know that Nick <laughs> loves when I speak French in the podcast, and that is the the sort of French TV regulation authority in the country. It is actually meant to be this independent authority, meaning it's completely unattached from the French government.、Uh, although obviously there have been numerous controversies and scandals over the years, and in terms Of age ratings, much like Australia, it appears it's very similar to the American movie system, where TV shows have broad guidelines in terms and advisory for people under ten, twelve, sixteen, and eighteen years old. But in terms of the content being impacted, I would say it's kind of the opposite of what is deemed controversial in America. I mean, nudity by and large isn't that big of a deal, while any kind of violence is a major issue. The first couple episodes of the new Exile season, season ten, last year were in fact censored on broadcast French TV, with some of those scenes with disfigured people that were obviously makeup effects, right? They were not, you know, anything extra from that, but they were deemed too shocking for a young primetime audience. And obviously, there have been a lot of similar issues with shows like The Walking Dead, which has very graphic violence. It's really interesting just to examine those cultural differences, even between, say, English-speaking countries from very similar origins, like the UK, the US. U.S. and Australia, for example, with swear words. I know there's a word that begins with C that is looked upon much more leniently in Australia than it is here in the U.S. It's considered much, much more offensive, and it's fascinating to know that some curse words have more impact or offense or difference between 
even very similar cultures. Yeah, I mean, in France, I can tell you right now that very few words are bleeped out. Those curse words, as far as I know, as far as I remember, a lot of those curse words can be said on prime time. Maybe they get fined and, you know, they try to avoid it. The equivalents of the F word or the C word or all those different words are not going to be bleeped out on, you know, 10 p.m. on on national TV. That's interesting because when I was up in Quebec and Montreal, I heard a similar thing that on TV, they don't bleep out anything like the F word, things like that. But there are certain Quebecois uh, insults that are explicitly tied to religious things, things like sacrement or tabernacle, things like that. Tabernacle. Sorry for (laughs) butchering French. but uh, Quebecois. This is not French. Yeah, Quebecois. Sorry. (laughs) Butchering the butchering of French. Uh, (laughs) But, you know, those actual, like, religious insults like that are highly offensive, but, like, the ones that the rest of the Western world, English-speaking world, considers offensive are not. Yeah, I would say that the equivalent would be sort of what you're describing, which is hate speech, essentially, which is different from just curse words. And again, I think it ties back to just different cultures. I mean, overall, uh, as I said, like nudity isn't inherently bad, right? Like it's not compared to violence, right? Like someone getting their heads bashed against a wall is to my ears and my eyes much more objectionable than the body of a naked woman. Like it's yeah, not- Look uh, at like artwork from back yeah, in the, you know, 14th, exactly. 15th century. There's like nudity depicted everywhere. It's not offensive. It wasn't censored. Yeah. Were, were you born with a black bar over your penis, Nick? Is, <laughs> is, that, is that how you were born into you this said world? You going to tell anyone about that. <laughs> We've talked about obviously censorship on a bigger scale, but we got to talk about how does this impact us TV writers and the actual TV writing of it all. And one of the elements that they want to bring up is this idea of self-censorship. I mean, I know, for example, that Doctor Strange wiped off of the movie any Tibetan references regarding the Ancient One uh, character played by Tilda Swinton. And that was clearly a decision that was made because of China and all those different uh, arguments, but that was made from the writing. That wasn't made after the movie was created. Yeah, it was a catch-22 for them as well because they wanted to release it in China, and obviously China has strained relations with Tibet, so they couldn't do that. But then they're then met with accusations of whitewashing because they've replaced a Asian character with a white character. Exactly. But you know, just going to some of my personal experience in writing for kids TV, whether you know just our own personal samples or in our job for a network or studio, there are a lot of things that you can't do. And we talked about this in Stephen's episode when he came in as well. But like, you can do very little, if any, showing of violence or aggression. You can't even have. I think in one episode, we couldn't uh, push a bowl off of a kitchen table or something. Really? Um, yeah. Uh, they often don't want humor where characters are being mean to one another and insulting each other, whereas a lot of jokes in adult sitcoms are characters putting each other down and making those kind of things about that. And, you know, the show we write for is about pets. So even have to be careful in one scene, I think they were eating ice cream, but S&P came back and said that ice cream actually makes dogs really sick. So they literally had to say the line non-dairy gelatinous <laughs> beverage or something instead. Like that's the, the limits that they'll go to just so that there are no possible chances that this show could be blamed for children doing something that hurts someone. That would be actually interesting to see uh, kids believing literally what they see on TV and just uh, doing it. I wonder if we need a warning. <laughs> Don't do this at home, kids. Don't feed yeah, your... I mean, there's a lot of psychology experiments about like the influence of media and things. You can go and look it up. I think that one of the, the pivotal ones was the experiment called the Bobo Doll Experiment done by a psychologist called Albert Bandura back in the early 60s. And it essentially involved showing young children this video of a kind of inflatable doll being hit with a bat by the researchers. And then they showed it to the children, then they let them into the room where there was a doll and a bat, and they they tried to see who would pick up the bat and hit this doll and mimic what they saw on TV. And this particular experiment found that it was more likely to increase their chances of picking up this bat and being aggressive because they watched it. Although it was a fairly flawed experiment, and they found that it doesn't exactly (laughs) correlate one-to-one, that a a kid's going to come and pick it up and do this thing. They're obviously certain conditions but it sparked this whole thing of even if you remember back in like with the columbine shootings things like that they were blaming rap music for these kids going out and doing that but modern studies have shown that there really isn't any kind of direct correlation between consuming media even media that promotes a more violent or aggressive message and making someone actually do it 
Absolutely. And a lot of it has to do with access to uh, those weapons. But that's another conversation. <laughs> Just going back to like sort of self-censorship and how does it apply to your own writing? I mean, on my end, a lot of it comes down to kind of the audience I'm aiming for with my script. I mean, both on the viewer level, but also on the network level. So for example, if I'm writing a broadcast network show, I won't really be cursing every line of dialogue. Again, I may do that on the pros. Lost, for example, was infamous for using a lot of curse word. Right. It's never uh, going to appear on the screen. It's just for the reader. Absolutely. Yeah. It's more to create this kind of like vivid imagery. But on the flip side, if I'm writing for cable, then I can be much more provocative. So it's a lot of it, again, comes down to um, just being aware of who my target audience is. Now, I will say this. Uh, I've read a lot of scripts recently where I feel there's a pushback with newer writers that kind of want to write edgy and this like cable version of their scripts. And so they start using curse words every line or every piece of dialogue is going to have the F word in it. And I mean, once or twice is fine, but if you end up doing it over and over again, just to be edgy, just to show, oh, this is going to be on HBO because it has the F word every line, it doesn't work that way. I mean, yeah, you have I, to, it has to be impactful and meaningful. I don't think people are thinking about it from a place of character. They're just thinking about it as like, oh, everyone in this world swears and it's going to be super realistic. And whenever I ask people, they, they pitch a show or something. Thing, and I'm like, oh, cool. Where do you see this living? Every time it's on oh, Netflix or HBO. Oh my like God. that's just the stock standard answer. And that shows that no one's actually thought about it because there are very specific things that Netflix and HBO want and need. And there are certain things in shows that would make it better fit elsewhere. Like TNT, USA, all those different networks. And the clearer your picture is, the better you can sell it, honestly, because, you know, Netflix shows, unless you're a triple A creator, probably not gonna be selling it at Netflix, but you can sell it at TNT probably easier than you would. Exactly. And just from a business perspective, you need usually your projects to be fully packaged with top level talent to get it on Netflix or HBO. But I remember when I was still learning screenwriting way back in the day at university, that was one of the things that I never even thought about when I was writing was, who am I writing this for? Where would this live? And so I think it is really important to do your research about the different networks and what kind of material they show and what kind of audiences they have as to who could possibly make this. Absolutely. And and that ties back to this idea of, I wouldn't call it self-censorship as much as figuring out who you're talking to, essentially. I mean, one of the pilots I just wrote recently was this very, honestly, like sexual pilot. You know, that had a lot of sex, but it is meant as an ABC-esque show. And I could do that because you have those Chandra Rhyme shows that have pushed those boundaries and have led the way in that regard. So I can play more and lean in more in that context. Now, I will say this again, it ties back to what I just said about the F word being used left and right. Like, don't be crass just to be crass. Have a purpose for it. Now, there are some shows that even despite censorship have found some creative ways to get around that, right? Yeah, I mean, one of the most recent example is the show American Crime on ABC, not to be confused with American Crime Story on FX. But American Crime clearly dealt with very mature themes and uh, mature characters and dialogue. And they would actually make a shortcut to black every time someone uses a curse word or foul language and viewers can just fill in the word and ABC by doing that or allowing that to happen, it wasn't really shying away from the language as much as kind of acknowledging that they are censoring it because they have to, not because they want to. That's interesting. So that was to draw more attention to the fact that it's being censored? I mean, kind of, it is basically a spotlight to that word being used and pretty effective in my mind. Speaking of ABC series, this is, I think, back in the 90s now, there was a CGI cartoon called Reboot, and it was so heavily censored by the network that they got really frustrated with them and ended up slipping profanity in as binary code, just as a little bit of a a middle finger to the censors. (laughs) What? Yeah. What does that sound like, though? It's like bleep, bleep. Well, I don't know whether it was visual on the screen or if they had people saying one and zero, but this was like a a high-tech computer world, like living in some kind of like internet. I have a feeling that the people who would understand the FU would not object. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I don't know how many kids would have uh, had a working knowledge of binary to be offended by that. And obviously, South Park is kind of famous for skirting around network censorship when they can by producing their shows on such a tight deadline. It's literally one week from writing to going to air that there's literally no time for the network censors to review it before they broadcast it. Didn't they talk about it on the, the documentary Six Days to Air mm-hmm. whole censorship process? I've, yeah. I found that fascinating. It was really um, interesting. And in fact, I mean, again, the whole censorship can actually be useful or used in a, an impactful way. Uh, Breaking Bad was actually only allowed one F word per season. So they actively thought about uh, what is the most impactful way of using that word in the season. So look back at those episodes where they do end up using the word. And it's the same idea that applies to most PG-13 movies, you are only allowed one 
one F word. And X-Men First Class used it pretty well with uh, Wolverine saying uh, F you to Chuck Xavier and Eric. Absolutely. In the iconic scene at the bar. Yeah, I guess it brings us to this question that do you think ultimately censorship is a good or a useful thing? And will we reach a point where it's not needed for adults who are able to take that stuff in? I know that John Langraff, the FX chief, told journalists a couple of years ago at the Television Critics Association, I'd like to get to a point where there's virtually no censorship and we're pretty close. And he said about the stuff that's used on his network, when things like racial epithets, etc. are used, they tend to be in a context where you see they're being used by a character that is doing something wrong. And it's pretty clear that they're doing something wrong. I'm definitely on board with what John Langraff is saying. I will say, though, that in my mind, it's kind of like straddling the line between creating content that is very niche versus very broad. So if you're going to be creating content that's going to be on broadcast network, broadcast network will always be censored. I don't see a day where CBS will let anything slide and standards and practices are going to be gone like the New York Times thought it was yeah, going to be. Absolutely. Um, like we said, it does just all tie back to money and to advertising. And also, I think in this day and age, it really speaks to as well the importance of bringing diverse voices into the writer's room and things like that, because censorship may be you know, morally objectionable on a broad level, but there are also these cultural specificities and things about people's identity and gender and sexuality that can be offensive to those communities that a group of white male writers may not understand. And so regardless of whether an S&P censor is going to come in and say something about that, it's really important for people to understand those different perspectives and be sensitive to that. Yeah, it's not just an ethnicity perspective, it's also a cultural perspective. I was reading an article about one of the writers on, was it Orange is the New Black? One of the TV shows uh, on the air right now. And she was talking about the differences between on Netflix versus broadcast cable. And this idea that if you're going to censor certain words, like a pendejo, a pendejo just means pubic hair. Mm -hmm. Like it's not nothing, uh, you know, out of the ordinary. Pubic hair shouldn't be censored. Right. And yet pendejo, the word was going to be censored in certain contexts. But exactly. if the show is so being played uh, to different crowds, uh, what is insensitive to one person may not be insensitive to the other. So you yeah. got to juggle all those Whose culture are we prioritizing here? And I think with how global entertainment is becoming, I think it's very short-sighted to focus your notion of offense on just the predominant or historical culture of one place or one community. Totally. But again, it comes down to money, right? You could say the same thing about China, right? They are actually prioritizing the Chinese cultures and values, or at least the current Chinese government's values. Because of the um, money. Because of money. So, uh, I mean, at the end of the day, it all comes down to who creates, who finances, and who distributes. So once you merge those three elements together, uh, what happens? And uh, that's why FX, I think, can do what they can do because John Langraff is very forward-thinking. You know, FX is very successful and essentially every endeavor they've done because they've given uh, creative freedom, but it's also because they're a very specific niche cable market. AMC is the same way, right? Like Mad Men could get away with it because the advertisers could spend money to uh, get the eyeballs of these very rich viewers, essentially. So it's kind of this weird balance that you got to thread carefully. <laughs> Do you have any resources for our listeners this week? Well, I recommended this book a while ago, but if you are interested in sort of the technicalities of standards and practices, censorship, the FCC's involvement in television, and kind of the nuts and bolts of how TV actually works in the US, the reference book, This Business of Television, has entire chapters dedicated to those topics. It's kind of a heavy read. I've said it before. It's, again, a reference book more than a, just a casual read, but it is very in-depth and uh, very useful. Well, that brings us to the end of the episode. So thanks, as always, for taking the time to listen. You can get all the show notes for this episode at paperteam.co slash 66. If you want to leave us a review, you can do that at paperteam.co slash iTunes. And all of those reviews are going to help us get new listeners. And Alex and I are definitely going to throw a party when we get an unspecified <laughs> number of reviews. And we'll invite everyone who left a review. Ooh, sounds very exclusive. <laughs> I like it. And thanks again to our sponsor, the 2018 Tracking Board Launchpad Pilots Competition. Our Paper Team listeners can use the code PAPERTEAM, all caps, all one word at the checkout to save $15 off their entry. And you can learn more about all the Launchpad's current competitions and exclusive partners by visiting tblaunchpad.com. And as always, I'm on Twitter at TVCalling. I'm at underscore NJ Watson. If you have any thoughts, feedback, uh, FUs, you can send them to ask at paperteam.co. And then next week, we're having an awesome episode, aren't we, Nick? Yes, we're going to be having our friend Britta London, who is a writer on Riverdale, going on two seasons now. And uh, she is also soon to be a published novelist. Ooh. So uh, we're going to be having some really cool conversations with her, and she is awesome. And we'll see you next week. We'll see you then. <laughs>